0: If authority is connected to the image of God, it has to be shared equally by both people in a relationship, and it has to be shared equally by both men and women in the church, because the image of God is not granted just to men. That's, I would say, heresy. This modern
1: world is of particular interest to women. Betwixt, at the intersection faith, and culture. Well, hi, everybody. Welcome to the Betwixt podcast in partnership with MissUAlliance.org. I'm your curator, Deb Gregory. Well, hey, we finally made it to the functional view of the image of God and the feminine experience. If you're just joining us, we're looking at how the dominant Christian views about the image of God have impacted women. You can listen to the previous episodes at betwixpodcast.com, missyoualliance.org, or wherever it is that you listen to podcasts. Well, this series has been really illuminating for me personally, but wow, it has been a lot of work. It's taken a lot of time and research to produce each episode. So if you've enjoyed the series, please consider supporting me. Every subscription and share makes such a huge impact on the path forward for this podcast. And if you're able to contribute financially, I'd be really appreciative. And if you want to do that, you can mosey on over to betwixpodcast.com and you can find a link which will take you to our Patreon page. Okay, so let me start with a confession. I'm a history nerd. The ancient Near East has always ignited my imagination. And one of my secret passions is archaeology. In uh, much younger days, I spent a few summers excavating in Israel, and I'll never forget the day that we unearthed what looked like a big lump of dried mud. But after we washed it and brushed off all the dirt, our team was shocked to discover it was a figurine. It was a musician playing a double flute. That was a really unreal moment for me. That image that we unearthed was considered by some scholars to be an Edomite cult figurine. In today's episode, we're going to go back into ancient times and look at how cult images were understood within the ancient Near Eastern cultural context. While the small figurine that I just mentioned may or may not have had cultic or religious purpose, ancient texts demonstrate that there were much larger and glorious images crafted specifically in the image and likeness of ancient Near Eastern gods. These discoveries provoke scholars to ask, How did these ancient man-made images, crafted in the image of the gods, play into the Old Testament notion of mankind crafted in the image and likeness of God? But before we jump back into the ancient world, we have to take a pit stop in the colonial world. As the big European empire stretched into the Middle East, wealthy explorers began digging around for ancient treasures. In many ways, it looked more like looting, but eventually, an entire field of science was devoted to the excavation and preservation of long-lost civilizations. During this archaeological explosion of the 19th century, explorers excavated the buried city of ancient Babylon, unlocked the tombs of Egypt, and unearthed the great library of Assyrian ruler Ashurbanipal. British archaeologists alone discovered more than 130,000 texts and artifacts that were shipped back to the British Museum in London. And there, scholars began the enormous task of deciphering and translating these documents. Masterful texts like the Babylonian creation story Enuma Elish and the Epic of Gilgamesh opened a portal into the ancient world that ignited a spark of intrigue that shot through academia. For Old Testament scholars, these troves of texts and artifacts offered a new lens for reading the Bible within the ancient context. And many of these ancient texts used image of God language in reference to a king or cult image. These kings and engraven images were granted authority to rule as divine representatives on earth. And so for Old Testament scholars, the Genesis 1 passage which says, God created man in his image and likeness was reconsidered through the lens of royal representation and dominion. Because the Hebrew word for image, salem, describes a physical object, usually a carved image or idol or statue, scholars insisted that the image of God was linked to the physical body. This pushed aside Hellenistic ideas that limited the image of God to spiritual and immaterial attributes, Somehow, man was created to be the physical representation of God on earth and to function as his agent and vice-regent in exercising dominion. But what about women? Was Eve also made in the image of God, or was she simply a derivation of the man from whom she was extracted? Did she also possess this royal dominion, or was she under the authority of the man who acted alone as God's royal representative? Theologian Charles Hodge, who helped birth the early evangelical movement, took the view that both male and female were made in the image of God, but with one
0: distinction. The man represents the authority of God. He is invested with dominion. But in the dominion with which man was invested over the earth, Adam was the representative of God. He is the glory of God, because in him the divine majesty is specially manifested. But the woman is the glory of the man. That is, the woman is in this respect subordinate to the man. She is not designed to reflect the glory of God as a ruler.
1: And this is a view that many evangelicals hold today. On one hand, this is a win for women who, for perhaps the first time in Christian history, are affirmed to bear the image of God with the same dignity afforded to men. But on the other hand, dominion and authority are viewed as given only to the man, and the woman is subordinate in accordance with the order of creation. Now, to be fair, complementarians like John Piper are quick to say that this male dominion and authority must always be benevolent. But because benevolent dominionists have not had a strong historical presence, this just hasn't felt like much of a wind for most women. Jewish biblical scholar Tikva Freimeyer kensky critiques this Christian view, saying that in the Hebrew Bible, quote, human beings can have dominion only over the earth and over the animals no person can have full dominion over another human being the idea of humanity as image of god makes no sense if it does not limit the ability of one human or one group of humans to exert their will over another there can be no distinctions between lesser or greater images of god autonomous or subordinate for if we begin to make such distinctions then the notion of image becomes a meaningless bit of self-congratulation End quote. christian hebraic scholar john gar affirms this view he says quote anything less than complete equality between women and men is a perversion of the nature of divine sovereignty that is to be imaged in humanity when either male or female attempts to rule over the other, sin is the force of that dominion, and sin's domination is never benevolent or compassionate. Dominion through domination is a perversion of the image of God, especially when one human being demeans and deprecates another. End quote. So while the functional view ignited many theological debates like this centered around dominion, Old Testament scholars began to take a step back, and look more intently at the connection between man-made images of gods and man as made in the image of God. Scholars like Meredith Klein, Kathy McDowell, Greg Beale, and Richard Middleton, to name just a few, began to reimagine Eden within the historical context of the ancient Near Eastern Temple Garden of God. They saw Eden as the microcosmic version of God's cosmic sanctuary, Within this setting, the creation and placement of mankind within Eden carried with a both royal and priestly identification. It's an identity that begins with a familial relationship to God as both kinsman and king. Kathy McDowell suggests that humans were, in one sense, created to be God's kin or royal children, But also, they were crafted as living statuettes that represent God in a priestly sense within his earthly macro-temple. So there's a lot to unpack here, but I wanted to give you this backdrop of the functional view of the image of God as we turn now to a conversation with my guest, Dr. Middleton. Hi, Richard. Hi. How are you?
0: Fine, thank you, Doug. Nice to see you.
1: Oh, hang on. If you didn't notice, Dr. Middleton is our courageous lone male representative in this discussion of the image of God and the feminine experience. Dr. Middleton is professor of biblical worldview and exegesis at Northeastern Seminary, and he's the author of numerous books and scholarly works, including The Liberating Image, the Imago Dei in Genesis 1. And I've sought out his voice because I think his book, The Liberating Image, does a really exceptional job of digging into the ancient concept of images, while also providing fresh insights into our current context. Not only does he voice the implications of the functional view for women and minorities, but how it has impacted Christians on a political and global level. Tell me a little bit about who you are and your background and your work.
0: Um, So I am originally a jamaican grew up in kingston jamaica did my bachelor of theology degree there and immigrated to canada after that and i'm now living in the us my my biggest developmental issue as a kid was that i was particularly shy very Not just introverted, but actually shy. So I needed a sense of to understand what the world was like outside of me, to be more outward-directed. And I found that actually studying the Bible and theology gave me a, a sort of a cosmological framework to interpret the wider world and to understand how culture worked and how history was working and where was my role in the world. Okay. Yeah, and specifically in that, the, the whole notion of being created in the image of God was very essential to me to affirm my individuality, even though I often felt inferior to others, Mm. to affirm that that God had a purpose for my life. And so it's been sort of my driving force to reflect on the meaning of the image of God in the Bible and in the history of Christian interpretation, because it has existential implications for my own life.
1: So... The reason why I've uh, asked you to join me in this conversation is to really look at this idea of the image of God through the functional view of the Imago Dei. Can you kind of talk us through how it came about and how it might differ from some of the other primary views of the Imago
0: Dei? Historically, it seems that there are a few people in, in Christian and Jewish interpretation throughout history who have had a functional view, but it really comes to fruition in the end of the 19th century. So instead of reading the Bible through the later traditions, which is an interesting and important thing to do, Bible scholars started to say, well, what would this have meant to someone of the time? What does image of God mean in ancient historical context? And the the term functional, I'm not particularly tied to it, um, but it was a term that was used by biblical scholar Gerhard von Rad, among others. So the functional view says um, the image of God is not because the human mind reflects the divine mind, sort of a platonic substance. It's more that humans are God's representatives in the world. There is a familial likeness to God. We are God's children, and so there's like-father-like-child idea. And the child represents the parents, in a sense. God sends us out into the world as his children. And our purpose is to exercise agency in this world. So we are royal representatives of the ruler of creation. In the ancient Near East, the king was thought to be the image of the God of that nation. And so the Bible addresses that, but democratizes that and says all people represent the king of creation by their dignified royal ambassadorial purpose to stand for God in the world. And that's really the summary of the the, the royal interpretation. Royal imagery, action imagery, our being is in our action. It's in our doing. It's not just in our capacities, but it's in our active ethical stances as we act in the world do we image God or not.
1: Okay, and so hence the idea of how we function as representatives of God.
0: How we function, yes.
1: Okay. Can you Take us now back into the ancient Near East. You said that scholars began to look at what this would have looked like back in the time when it was written historically and culturally. So if we were the original audience listening to the words of Genesis 1 on, you know, ancient podcast,
0: You're right? Uh-huh.
1: how would we have heard this message that God made male and female in his image and likeness? What would come to mind? What, what meaning would this have for us?
0: If you live in the ancient world, almost every single city-state in ancient Mesopotamia and Egypt and Canaan and so forth had a king. And the king was both a priest and a king. The king ruled on behalf of the gods, was a mediator of the blessing and presence of the deities into the world. And the king, therefore, was called in Egypt the image of God. We have um, lots of texts that refer to the king as the image of, say, Horus or Amun-Re or some other deity. Mm. In Mesopotamia, the king is sometimes referred to as the image of Marduk or the image of the god Shamash, or just using the general term image of Bel. Bel means lord. So the kings are as the image of a god who represent the god in the world. Sometimes priests are also called the image of god. When they do, say, an incantation, which brings about some change in the world, they're harnessing the power of a deity, so they're also in the image of a god, because image is a representative notion but very few people are in the image of a God in the ancient world. Mm. The majority of human beings, for example, in the Mesopotamian creation accounts like Enuma Elish, and the famous Babylonian creation story, the gods create the mass of humanity as basically cheap slave labor to work at agriculture to produce food that may be offered to the gods as sacrifices so the gods don't have to produce their own food. And humans also build temples So they both feed the gods and they house the gods. And that's the purpose of being human. Mm. And priests and kings, as special representatives of God, guide and harness the mass of humanity to do this. Now, of course, in reality, kings are harnessing the mass of humanity to build their own empires. But the religious legitimation is that you are serving the gods by doing it. And there's a lot of disagreement among biblical scholars about the historical backgrounds of what actually happened in the Bible, how historical is the the Exodus or whatever. But there's one thing that they all agree on. Israel is the only known nation in the ancient Near East that, when it was founded, did not have a king, Ah. the only known nation. Every other, even a small town of 5,000 people had a king, but in Israel... There is a Torah. There is a law that covers all people. And when they finally get a king later on, um, there is a, a law for the king in Deuteronomy 17 that limits kingship to something like um, a constitutional monarchy. And any ancient or recent person would have said, well, that's not a king. A king has to have absolute power. But there's no one in the Bible who's allowed to have absolute power oh. because all are equal in God's sight. So when the Bible says now God made humanity, male and female, as his image and likeness, it's a critique of an elitist social order, which says that all people are initially equal. All have access to God by being the image of God. All have royal dignity in the world, including women, men and women, Hmm. all people.
1: Okay. What about the priesthood?
0: So... We distinguish priesthood from king, but the, the king in the ancient Near East was thought to be the high priest of the national religion. They had many gods, but whatever was the chief god of that culture, the king was the high priest. So there was tension between the priests, who had their own agendas and their own control systems, and the king who wanted to take full control. And at various times in the history of Mesopotamia, we know that the kings took over all the temples, and all the temples were viewed as subservient to the monarchy. Yeah, so we clearly see that using religion to justify power and justify systems of oppression.
1: Mm, Yes. For Israel, the idea of a nation of priests was significant. Was that different from the other uh, neighboring nations?
0: Very distinctly different, yes. To say that Israel is a royal priesthood or a kingdom of priests, as Exodus 19 says, is quite a radical notion. So the Bible would say that to be in the image of God is also to be a priest of God, To stand between God and the non-human world and to be a mediator of blessing to the world. And also to bring that world, the non-human world, to God as an offering to glorify God through what we do in that world. Mm. So a priest ought to really be someone who empowers and who brings blessing. But of course, um, an illegitimate priest hoards power and says, God and me on one side, the rest of you plebs on the other side. Which is often how priests have functioned in the history of even the church. Right, And it's how, it's how pastors often function in the history of the church. It's how anyone who gets power, it often goes to your head and you believe you are superior to other people. So the Bible would not say you cannot have any asymmetries of power. You need to have organizations with leadership and so on. But no one is intrinsically superior to anyone else. And anyone in principle could become the leader of an organization hmm. because all are priests of God.
1: Okay. That's really helpful to kind of set the distinction. Can you talk more about the ancient idea of images?
0: Okay, so this is now the other piece that has become even more important to me in understanding the historical background of the image of God in Genesis. That is, Jewish scholars have always known, and many Catholic scholars have been aware of this for the last century, but Protestants haven't been, that in the Bible, the cosmos of heaven and earth is considered a cosmic temple. Mm. And God is in the holy of holies of that temple, which is heaven, or the heavens, that is the, the realm above. And we are on earth, and the earth is our realm. And we are to manifest the presence of God from heaven to earth as the image in the cosmic temple. Just as every temple in the ancient world would have an image, usually a very large 10 or 12 foot statue of a deity in a recessed cellar at the back of the temple, And that was somehow the place where all the cosmic energies from heaven were harnessed and funneled through. So you worshiped the God in heaven through the image on earth. And the priests, of course, controlled that. In the cosmic temple of creation, the human race is the place where God's presence and power are being channeled to the non-human realm, that the non-human realm would also be able to worship God, the way Psalm 148 speaks of it. It calls upon every creature in heaven and earth to praise the Lord, from the waters above the heavens to the great sea monsters and the trees and the mountains, also human beings too, they have a role in praising God. But in the cosmic worship service of creation, the human role distinctively is, by our use of power, can we energize the rest of creation to give glory to God? Or do we shut down creation by our oppressive use of power? That it doesn't worship God. And we do this also with other human beings, I think, by analogy. How do we also empower others to worship God? Do we pay it forward, if you will? To image God is not like reflecting back to God. That would make God the great Narcissus in the sky, okay. who just wants to see his own image in us. But we're paying it forward. We're the image as a prism that refracts the light of God into the world that the world may respond to God of its own accord. We're empowering the world and empowering others. So I think image of God is the the fundamental idea in the Bible. Even though it's only referred to explicitly a few times, this notion of being human is like a great underground river that flows throughout the Bible. And it comes to the surface in a bubbling spring in a few places where you get the term image of God. But even without that term, the basic idea is there.
1: So I was intrigued that the, the Hebrew word for tselem, um is just used in the first few chapters of Genesis for humans. And then after that, it always referred to some kind of carved object or an idol of some sort. Is right. that correct?
0: That's correct, yes. So it would have been shocking to a reader of Genesis 1 to hear that, because they're saying, but that's a term for idols. But uh, the Bible is saying, no, you are the image of God.
1: Okay, That's a really distinct point. (laughs) I've often thought of imaging God purely as just representational, but this idea of it being a presentational image, I think has been kind of new and really awakening for me in some sense. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about that process in the ancient Near East? of What did they think of these images?
0: So we have actually from Mesopotamia and from Egypt, but more from Mesopotamia, ritual texts for how to create an image. So first of all, the image is carved out of wood in a workshop, overlaid with precious metals like gold or silver, um, decorated in various ways, then taken into a garden, a sacred garden or grove. And through a series of rituals over a number of days, the image is said to come alive, to be vivified, because the god comes to dwell in the image. His presence or his spirit comes to dwell in the image. And these rituals are known as either the opening of the mouth or the washing of the mouth. This is supposed to have opened all the orifices of the image so the image can see, can hear, can, can speak, can smell all this stuff and can walk. The image becomes alive. And then they take the image beside a river like the Tigris or the Euphrates and do some washing with it. And then they install it in the temple. So there's a sense in which you see that in Genesis 2. Genesis 2 has God creating the human being from the dust of the ground, and then breathing into the human being the breath of life, and the human being comes alive. And so there is a play on this notion that, no, the image you make in a workshop is not the true representative of God. God has already made the true representative of the divine, and that's the human race. So even though Genesis 2 doesn't use the term image of God, it's referring to the same idea, that God is vivifying uh, a creature of clay and dust to ordinary mortal creature to represent God in the world. And one of the critiques of the, the ritual of bringing an image to life in Genesis 2 and 3 is not just that those are not the images, we are the true images, but also the opening of the eyes occurs at the end of Genesis 3 and it's not good. So there's a sense in which they're playing off that and saying, well, there's a particular way your eyes can be opened, but it's ironically going to destroy you. Because you come to knowledge too early. You need to come to knowledge, the right knowledge over time at God's direction. So there are that gone wrong in the human image. And so Genesis 1 and 2 and 3 together say that although we have been made in the image of God, and we cannot stop reflecting God in some way, we can become a distorted image. We can um, block the light from shining through, or we can reflect a false God. So when you worship an idol, you give over your imaging power to something else. You never stop imaging, but you become subservient to that idol. And if that idol is the god of wealth or the god of power or the god of warfare or sexuality, then you become in the image of that idol. You become corrupted and distorted in some way.
1: So the ancient view of these images that were created, they weren't really viewed as indestructible. They did go through periods of time where they need to be remade, and exactly, um, yes. they were corruptible. Yes. Yeah, is there anything in that that is significant? Oh, I have
0: never thought of that connection. That's a really interesting connection. Wow. <laughs> the, the, the difference there is only the king can reconstruct the image, where I'd say um, we have to undergo reconstruction voluntarily.
1: <laughs>
0: mm. It doesn't come from the outside or from the hierarchy and the purpose of um, the coming of Christ, the true image of God, the one who fully manifested God in everything he did, um, who actually used his power for salvation by giving up his power. That was not an act of someone powerless. It was an act of someone of the greatest possible power, but who used it for our benefit, and that becomes the model now to restore us, that we might image God again and be the priests of God. That's why Paul both says that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, and we are renewed in the image of God. That language is equivalent, I think, to be the temple of the Holy Spirit, the church becomes the, the indwelling of God's presence in the world, and the church becomes a new humanity, modeling what it means to be human again. That's the ideal, anyway. Of course, we haven't lived up to that, always.
1: Mm. I think that's really fascinating. It it kind of brings to mind passages from Isaiah for me, especially the idea of Israel being this image of God, yes. and yet Isaiah is saying you're blind, you're deaf, you're dead.
0: Exactly, exactly.
1: Uh, let's go back to kind of like the popular idea of of the functional view, because what I'm hearing you say is what I've heard just in the last few years, but the way I was taught the functional view was this idea of being, you know, an agent or, or a representative of God on earth. Not really the sense of being vivified or, or awakened, um, necessarily, but as a representative, we are to have dominion. Can you talk a little bit about that strand of thought and, and how sure. that's kind of played out?
0: Yeah. So originally, the notion of dominion is just taking from the king who had dominion and saying, we all share power. So it uses a royal idiom. But there are certain trends in Christianity that, particularly very patriarchal forms of Christianity, that latch onto this notion of dominion, and therefore like the functional interpretation. But they they're they limit it to the fact that we have power, we have authority on behalf of God to act in the world. The we usually means men. So this can be, like anything else, it can be distorted. Um, John Calvin once said that the human mind is a factory of idols. We can take anything and distort it. And so that's a particular distortion that I have been fighting against for a long time um, because I want to say that I I accept the basic premise of the functional interpretation, but I don't take it in that direction. I take it in, I think, the original direction that scripture intended, which I now call a sacramental interpretation of the image. I don't call it functional anymore because that tends to have certain connotations. I believe it's functional, agency and so forth. But you use agency to empower in my opinion, and you use agency communally in cohort with others, the sharing of power, because that's how God makes the world. God gives the world its own power in Genesis 1. God creates fertility in the world. In the ancient East, you had to offer sacrifices to the gods. Please, can you let us have fruitful crops and fields that, that aren't in deserts? But in the Bible, God says, I've given, put seeds in the trees, they can. Reproduce and the animals are going to reproduce. Let them keep going. Um, God has gifted generative power to the world. And so how do we in the image of God functionally gift generative power to others? Wow. That's the true image of God. But that's also got this priestly sacramental cast to it that I think it's become really important to me. Perhaps as I have become involved in more sacramental churches, I have become to, I've come to see the side of things more.
1: Can you talk a little bit more about that? I'm really intrigued by this idea of the priestly and the sacramental, particularly through the lens of liminality. Cause
0: okay.
1: what I find really fascinating about liminality is that in, in that space, I guess for the priest between heaven and earth, in that space, it's usually marked by inversions. And, and yeah. in this sense, it really seems like what God is asking is for an inversion
0: of power. Inversions assume that, okay, the previous state of the world is fundamentally wrong. So we're going to turn it around Mm. to fix it. But I want to say the original state of the world has been distorted. It's already become inverted. So the inversion is a transformation back to what it was meant to be. Mm. Power was always to be used for the benefit of others, never just for self-aggrandizement. That's why creation theology has been so important to me. And why I've been very aware that in the Bible, you don't have a buying into the ancient Eastern notion that the gods create the cosmos by the subduing of evil forces. Instead, God creates the cosmos as an artisan, developing something beautiful. Evil is something later that resists God's will. And so evil is not primordial. And so God's power is not primarily the power of conquest. So I don't need to invert What's original and to go back to what's original. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, I agree with you, but I just don't want to give precedence to the current state of the world as if it's normal. Mm -hmm. It's not normal. That's right. I'm thinking of in Mark chapter 10, where the disciples want prestige and power to sit at his right hand. And Jesus says that he, that the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them and are tyrants over their peoples, but it shall not be that way among you. That they who wants to be first needs to be last, and the who wants to be greatest should be the servant of all. Because even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. So if the one with the greatest power, who Philippians says was in the very form of God, gave it up and became a slave and a servant of us, that is a modeling of power that says you should not go the way the world goes. That is a distortion that we need to resist.
1: Mm, that's very good. Bring this forward to um, maybe some of the political movements that have come out of this. The cultural mandate um, is one that a lot of people talk about, dominionism. Can you just talk about how this has kind of played out politically?
0: Well, so I, I use the term cultural mandate quite mutually to refer to um, the task of developing the potentials of the world to bring out institutions, technology, art, to develop the world into a complex, beautiful place. But I guess there are certain movements. Um, there are pretty small movements in terms of Christian movements. One of them has been called Theonomy or Christian Reconstruction. And that's a very hierarchical, sort of um, hyper-Calvinist movement that wants to see Christians taking over American culture for God and imposing Old Testament laws and sanctions on our contemporary world. And it's a particularly um, nasty movement. And I have listened to sermons preached by people in that movement who explicitly say that um, if there are political opponents you have that disagree with you, then you have to think that they're opposing the church. And so what leaders of the church should do is pray the imprecatory psalms, the cursing psalms against them, that God would destroy them. Wow. I mean, I've heard sermons preached like that. So that is clearly uh, an understanding of dominion that is, first of all, Buying into ancient Near Eastern pagan notions of power as conquest, which is not biblical at all, and it's also elevating men because it tends to be a very anti-womanist movement. And so I think that's a significant distortion. You may know that Pat Robertson, the Christian who ran for political office some years ago, mm, television, yeah, who was really a dispensationalist. That is, he viewed God is coming back to take us all to heaven and burn up the world. He was convinced of Christian Reconstructionism, and that's why he ran for office. He didn't change any of his patriarchy, any of his oppressive attitudes. He just changed from this one point, is God going to destroy the world, or does God want to take over the world? And he decided the latter, and so he ran for office. Luckily, he didn't get in.
1: Wow. Okay. Yes, you know, I grew up with this. We were bussed down to Washington, D.C. to march for all kinds of things, for this idea that we should regain political power in the name of God to um, set the world straight.
0: Yeah, there there was a significant shift in American um, politics in the way Christianity related to it in the mid to late 70s. Prior to that, certainly the second quarter and maybe the third quarter of the 20th century, Most Christians in America try to keep out of politics um, because they didn't believe God had plans for this world. But a change occurred around 1975, 76, 77, where Christians began to get involved in politics and believe that they should use the political machine to put their people in power and change the ethos and makeup of America. Even if they didn't explicitly hang on to the functional notion of the image of God, They've got something like that in the background, but it's a particular dominion version of it, I would think. Mm-hmm. Some of the Reconstructionists are also hyper-capitalists, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and there are some of the climate deniers and all that stuff. So the way that Reconstructionism and some of these people portray it is that you got Christians on the one side, they're pure, and there's everybody else on the other side. There's a quote, quote from Kuiper that's almost identical to a quote from C.S. Lewis. And um, Kuiper says that there's nothing in the entire world that Christ doesn't say, it's mine. So Christ owns the world. Lewis has this thing to say that um, every square inch, every split second is claimed by God and counterclaimed by Satan. Very similar idea. Oh. That we're in a spiritual struggle that is not limited to the interior of the, of the Christian life. It's not limited to church. It's it's all of life is in a struggle between the kingdom of God and that of corruption. The line of demarcation between God's kingdom and the evil one cuts through every single person, every single human heart, and it cuts through every single institution. Even the church is in a battle for uh, spirituality because evil corrupts the church and the human heart as much as it corrupts the political sphere and so on.
1: Mm, Yes. Can we shift now to women and how this view has impacted women and minorities? Have you been able to observe that in any way?
0: I can just say from the women that I know in church circles and in academic circles, those who have really owned their own subjectivity and their agency as actors before the face of God in the world, they share a similar vision of being human, whether or not they use image of God language for that. It has to do often with a sense of dignity, a sense of being able to connect with God and not having to go through a human intermediary. So I think it's impacting women in a wonderful way. But I think there's a whole lot more to be done for that. I think that in the church in America, there is so much patriarchy still, even among those who speak equality language. Their actual treatment of people is not right. Mm -hmm. And so we I think we need to do some theological framing of why this is important theologically, as well as from a justice point of view. But I think in the church... If people are concerned about giving honor to God, then we have to be concerned about how we share power in the church and in the world.
1: Yeah, I think that's good. I, I don't want to in any way get into the egalitarian or um, complementarian debate. Um,
0: I don't mind. I don't <laughs> mind.
1: <laughs> I'm trying to stay out of polarizing topics. <laughs> but um at some point I pulled out the complementarian manual or handbook for biblical manhood and womanhood and was intrigued that this idea of the functional view was kind of bedrock. It seemed as though this idea of authority was just so, so important. Um, Even though there was equal dignity, the authority for the male is is something that needs to be preserved. I wonder if you might say anything about that.
0: Um, It's not biblical. (laughs) Can I start there?
1: (laughs) Please do. (laughs) How so?
0: So um the first thing to say though is according to the studies that have been done there isn't a lot of difference in practice between egalitarians and soft complementarians they often function very similarly in the way men and women interact and are treated um the one difference is when that becomes part of church doctrine then women are prevented from seeking ordination in churches though they may have various sorts of positions just not ordination for pastoral leadership because as you say That's often interpreted in light of the question of authority. I think some of this historically goes back to um, the Presbyterian Reformed tradition, which understands pastors as ruling elders. And this is why women in some denominations were not allowed to become elders either, because elders rule, they have authority. So women might be able to teach in Sunday school, but they can't preach because that's an authority thing that only a ruling elder does. I think that distinction just doesn't make sense of the Bible because humans are given equal power as image of God, male and female. And if I had time, I'd take you through Genesis 2 and 3, which I've just written a number of articles on, on the the way humans are viewed as equal in Genesis 2 and 3. You know, we talk about in Genesis chapter 3, God's word to the woman after the fall is, your desire will be for your man or your husband, your ish, and but he will rule you. That is a post-fall phenomenon. Originally, they were meant to be equal, having equal desire for each other, which is intimacy. But after the fall, things change. Generally, not universally, men tend to exercise power over women. Generally, women still desire men. In the context, it might mean desire men for childbearing, given the fact that later on in the ancestral stories of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, one of the big problems is women wanting to bear children, not being able to bear children. But certainly something unequal has happened i'm going to quote isaac watts hymn joy to the world which says he comes to make his blessings known far as the curse is found and if part of the curse or the consequences of sin where blessing gets transformed into negativity is that men and women are no longer equal generally in the way society functions then in christ we have a mandate to repair that just as we have a mandate to repair anything else that has gone wrong in the world so you notice that the man names the animals in Genesis 2, but cannot find a suitable companion, an equal companion. When he finds a woman, he says, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And that's language used of kinship in the Bible, where you find your relative, someone who is from your own group. Um, so he finds someone who is similar, but yet different. So he makes the pun that this one shall be called woman, because she's taken out of man, and the word for woman is isha. The one from man is Ish. And the narrator previously said God made the woman, the ish Shah, and took her to the man to see what he would do. And the man recognizes a companion. But after the fall, after the asymmetry of power is introduced, that's when the man names the woman, Mm. Eve, exactly the same way he named the animals. So naming the woman in this chapter 3 is an example of the dominion because you can only actually name someone who is not equal to you in power. So you can name your children, but when your children grow up and become adults, you can't change their names. Just try it. <laughs> it's not going to work. <laughs> the asymmetry of power between men and women in the Bible is not normative. It's part of the fall. Mm-hmm. So if you want to then entrench that in church doctrine that men ought to have power over women, you're saying that Christ's work is insufficient to fix what went wrong with the world. Mm-hmm. It's a fundamental theological problem, I think.
1: But I think it's helpful within this framework of the functional view of what you're saying, that the whole purpose is not authority of power, but of empowerment. So Mm -hmm. even if you did take that complementarian view, I would hope that this call for empowerment would be something that's more valued than it currently is in the discussions.
0: I think so. I think that'd be great. As I said at the beginning, um, many surveys being done of how this works, many people say there aren't a lot of differences in practice between some forms of complementarianism and egalitarianism. There actually is a sense of empowerment. But I would just want to say, I affirm that and I go one step further. If authority is connected to the image of God, it has to be shared equally by both people in a relationship. And it has to be shared equally by both men and women in the church. Because the image of God is not granted just to men. That's, I would say, heresy.
1: Mm, That's a big word.
0: It's a big word, but I think it goes against biblical teaching. That means it's heresy.
1: Thank you for for sharing that. I think that's really helpful for this discussion of how it does impact women. Um, As we're caught, many women do not have a lot of deep theological training. We're just caught between these arguments that are engaged by men and a few women who are in the upper echelons of theological training. Mm -hmm. So I think it's very confusing I was speaking to a woman this week, and she said, I feel barren in the church because I don't feel like I am drawn out into my full giftings, and I don't even know that I'm allowed to think about that. I haven't been invited there yet, and so I feel barren rather than fruitful. And that just really grieves me.
0: Yes. And I can say that I know women in churches that have formal equality in their doctrinal statements for men and women and women are allowed to be ordained and yet they still experience exactly what you're saying because the attitudes of the average person in the church has not caught up with their doctrine. Mm. So it's more than just changing the ideas. It's changing how people actually function in church.
1: I'm really intrigued by where you're going with this idea of the image of God and the sacramental concepts. And what's your vision for the church with that?
0: <laughs> well, how do I state that in a few words? <laughs> <laughs> what I do when I teach this material in church and in seminary is I start with the world as God's temple. And God wants all the world to bring glory to him. So what is our role as image in the temple? And I start there. So the the sacramental is really my entry point these days for bringing this idea across. I mean, I maybe have to steal language from Paul in Ephesians. that I really hope that the church grows up into the full maturity of Christ the head, which means modeling ourselves on Christ, using him as our paradigm, Um, the one who treated all people equally, the one who challenged authority structures when necessary, the one who gave his life a ransom for many. Though we can't ransom others, we can image him knowing that many times, and I'm speaking to men now especially, because I don't want to tell women this, but men, to use power in a holy way will often require sacrifice. In a fallen world, you often cannot do what is right without being hurt and intentionally stepping into the place of suffering. And that's one of the things Paul says, I I want the resurrection of the dead, but I have to share the fellowship of Christ's sufferings to attain that. Life is complex, and we can't always get there simply, but I pray that the church would grow up, so the church would dig into the scriptures with an open vision of God's intentions for the flourishing of the world, including of all people everywhere. And I just wish that men would take that as seriously as many women are taking that.
1: Mm, that's very good. Thank you so much, Richard. I really appreciate your time and your thoughtfulness. Oh, my pleasure. What I appreciate about the sacramental approach is that it diminishes power and emphasizes service. And that's just what we see in Genesis too. when God commissions the gardeners of Eden to serve and protect the sacred temple sanctuary. But until recently, this just hasn't been my experience of the functional view of the image of God. Now, I've certainly felt the undercurrents of the substantive and relational views of the Imago Dei in my experience as a woman, but it's the functional view that I learned firsthand in church and Bible college. The idea of dominion fueled my teenage political activism as my community banded together in support of the Christian coalition. Anyone remember that era from the 80s and 90s? That's when Pat Robertson said, there will never be world peace until God's house and God's people are given their rightful place of leadership at the top of the world. This just gives me shivers today. But back then, I felt it as a welcome call for women to lead alongside men. I was invited to participate politically in this quest for holy dominion. But the irony is that the call to leadership evaporated every Sunday when I entered the church doors. And at some point, this house of cards fell down for me. When Richard talks about power, I feel something rumble in my bones. And perhaps this is why I'm I'm leery to engage the popular and, well, historically novel, complementarian and egalitarian debates that fracture the church today. Too often, these debates feel to me like power struggles. But I suppose the main reason I avoid this debate is because... My own theological views and the trajectory of the questions that I'm asking really don't align with either camp. But don't get me wrong, I still think that there are incredibly important cultural discussions to be had and engaged within this complementarian and egalitarian debate. But this study has released me to cast a vision for women and men that rejects the quest for dominion and power, that rejects a gated feminine experience of the Imago Dei that is mediated through men. We have no mediator but Christ. He is remaking us in his image to serve as his priesthood, to lead the earth in worship of God Almighty, and to fill it with his glory. In the ancient world mythology, mouth-washing and opening rituals were performed on cult images to vivify or awaken the presence of the God within. Without the awakening, it could not see, hear, smell, taste, live, move, or even have its being. But once vivified, the object of worship became the thing worshipped. The prophet Habakkuk rejected this pagan idea, saying, Woe to him who says to a piece of wood, Awake! or to a muted stone, Arise! And that is your teacher? Behold, it's overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath in it at all. But to whom was the breath of God given? To stone or wood? No, it was to humans, the images of God Almighty. Greg Beale suggests that this is at the root of the sacramental identity of humanity. Not only were humans fashioned from the earth in the image of God, but also vivified with God's breath. Ears listening to God's footsteps, mouths tasting the fruit, and eyes opening to good and evil. As imagers, we become like what we worship. What we revere, we resemble either to ruin or to restoration. And my hope is that women will heed the sacramental call to lead the earth in worship of God and to fill the earth with his glory as we, together with all humanity, seek the awakening of God's life within us for our eyes, ears, mouths, and very breath to be vivified so that we may resemble God in all of his love and goodness and engage his work of restoration in this broken world. So arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of God rises upon you. Awake, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ shall give you light. Amen.